from Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is What's Next. With top shooter Peyton Gendron scheduled back in court on Friday, February 2nd, today's show features producer Patrick Hoskin having conversations with legal experts around the issue of capital punishment. First, Megan Byrne, a staff attorney at the ACLU's Capital Punishment Project, explains what to expect from the federal case against Gendron and discusses the implications of race in relation to the death penalty. Any kind of nudge forward the acceptance of capital punishment as something that should exist or something that isn't racist or something that won't end up disproportionately killing so many more black people, I can't support anything on that road. Then William Easton, a partner at the law firm Easton Thompson Casper Schifrin and former supervising attorney at the Capitol Defender Office, traces the history of the death penalty in New York State and his experience defending against it. All this and more on What's Next. First, the news. For Buffalo Toronto Public Media, I'm Tom Birch with your local headline news. A Buffalo man has been sentenced to 23 years in prison for fatally shooting another man in a vehicle at a stoplight, Erie County District Attorney John J. Flynn announced. Erie County Court Judge James Barnese also ordered Mujahad Miller to undergo five years of supervision after he's released. Miller pleaded guilty November 16th to first-degree manslaughter, a Class B violent felony. Prosecutors said Miller fired an illegal handgun at John Rico Walker Jr. of Buffalo as he sat in a vehicle stopped at a red light at William and Hickory Streets near Town Gardens about 2.15 p.m. on October 16, 2022. Walker was taken by ambulance to Erie County Medical Center with a head wound and died there a few days later. Rico D. Small of Buffalo pleaded guilty yesterday in Erie County Court to a single count of enterprise corruption, acknowledging that he oversaw a retail theft ring between October 2022 through September 2023, according to the Erie County District Attorney's Office. Prosecutors said Small employed other people to steal items from retailers throughout Erie County and then sold the stolen merchandise. The ring is believed to be responsible for about $70,000 in thefts. Small, who is being held in lieu of $200,000 bail, faces a maximum of 25 years in prison when he is sentenced on March 6th. District Attorney John J. Flynn said in a statement yesterday that such thefts are financially devastating for retailers, especially local small business owners. He commended Detective Chris Lavallo of the Cheektowaga Police Department and various members of the State Police, Buffalo Police Department, Cheektowaga Police Department, and the Town of Hamburg Police Department for their work in the investigation, which is ongoing. Nine school districts in western New York will receive state grants to help recover from the pandemic learning loss and expand mental health services for students, Governor Kathy Hochul announced. Two of them, the Buffalo City School District and Erie 2 Chautauqua Cattaraugus Board of Corporate Education Services, will get awards from both programs. Buffalo will receive $2,888,515 from the Pandemic Learning Loss Program and $5 million from the Mental Health Program. Erie 2 Board of Cooperative Education Services has been awarded $667,742 to combat learning loss and $364,202 for mental health services. Also receiving $308,298 in learning loss assistance is the Cuba Rushford Central School District in Allegheny County. Mental health funding will go to six other local school districts, Clarence, which will receive $921,702, Dunkirk, $290,572, Gowanda, $182,733, Iroquois, $200,000, City of Tonawanda, $1,250,106, and Williamsville, $55,983. The grants are part of $100 million in assistance awarded to 50 school districts across the state to help students who have fallen behind due to the pandemic and to support student mental health concerns. For WBFO, I'm Tom Barich. 
I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. Welcome to What's Next. I'm Patrick Hoskin. Ahead on today's episode, I'll be speaking with two attorneys, Megan Byrne of the ACLU's Capital Punishment Project and William Easton, formerly of the Capital Defender Office in New York State, about what to expect in the federal death penalty case of Peyton Gendron, who carried out a racist shooting attack at Top Supermarket on May 14th, 2022. Gendron is scheduled to appear back in court on Friday, February 2nd. This latest update in the case arrives at a time when capital punishment is once again making national headlines. On January 25th, Scott Tong of member station WBUR's program Here and Now spoke with the executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center, Robin Marr, about where we are in America with the death penalty. Tonight, the state of Alabama is scheduled to execute inmate Kenneth Smith. The method is nitrogen gas used for the first time in a U.S. execution. The plan is to put a mask over his face and then fill it with nitrogen to deprive him of oxygen. Smith is filing a last-minute appeal to the Supreme Court. It has already declined to intervene once. Kenneth Smith is one of two people convicted in a 1988 murder for hire of a pastor's wife. Let's talk about this case and the death penalty in this country with Robin Marr. She's executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center, which we should note takes no position on the death penalty itself. Robin, welcome. Great to be here, Scott. Now, the state of Alabama tried to execute Kenneth Smith a little more than a year ago by lethal injection, but they failed. They couldn't find a vein for the IV before the death warrant expired. Now they're trying nitrogen gas. Now, Smith spoke to NPR from prison last year, and here is what he said about what it's like to face this upcoming execution. I've been doing time for 35 years now, and I've tried to place myself in my brother's shoes when they're around the corner and going through this but nothing prepares you for it. The anxiety and stuff starts building before you ever get your date. You know, as you're approaching that time, and the anxiety starts to build. Wow. Yeah, the audio is a little challenging, but boy, him talking about the mental trauma. Uh, Robin, help us understand the process scheduled for this evening, nitrogen hypoxia. How does it work? Well, I think you've already identified sort of the broad outlines, and it should be noted right off the bat that we don't have all the information about this protocol. That's one of the challenges here, and one of the reasons there are so many concerns. Like many death penalty states, Alabama has chosen to shroud its procedures, even the identification of the execution team, in secrecy. But what we know is that Mr. Smith will be forced to breathe pure nitrogen gas uh, through the mask. It's a procedure that's never been tried before, never been used in the United States for an execution. And uh, a lot of people are worried it's going to go terribly wrong. Yeah, I understand there are concerns the gas could leak out, yeah? Yeah, his lawyers are arguing that if the mask is not sealed on his face, 
then that could change the, it could become dislodged and that will change the amount and uh, the content of the gas that could prolong his death and his suffering. And of course, Mr. Smith is very likely to pray audibly. He chose to do that last time uh, when Alabama tried to execute him the first time in 2022. When he prays audibly or when he's making his final statement, the mask may become dislodged. That would be one way that the execution could go wrong. And then his lawyers have also argued that because Mr. Smith is suffering uh, from so much trauma from that first execution attempt, that he's been nauseous and has been vomiting almost daily. And mm. experts have said if he vomits in the mask, he could aspirate that material, and that could also prolong his death and increase his suffering. 27 states in this country have the death penalty on the books, though just a handful currently employ it. Alabama is not the only state looking for alternatives to lethal injection. Help us understand why. What are the the broader challenge? Is it gaining access to the drugs or is it the actual logistics of the event? A few years ago, pharmaceutical companies learned that their drugs were being used in executions and uh, they objected to that fact. And that led them to withdraw those drugs from the market or refuse to sell them to prisons. And that led the prisons to sort of try to find alternatives to the lethal injection. They first tried to create their own set of drugs or use uh, untested combinations of other drugs, and that resulted in some terribly botched executions like we saw Alabama do in the summer of 2022. So mm. now they've identified alternate methods. Some are proposing to return to the electric chair, uh, to hangings, even to the firing squad. Now, in recent years, I, I believe the number of executions in this country has gone down. Is it expected to continue trending down? Well, I would expect that it would continue to trend down for lots of reasons. We'll never go back to the time 20 years ago when we will, we had 300 new death sentences a year and almost 100 executions. We've learned so much more about the vulnerabilities of people who are in our criminal justice system, including the effects of severe mental impairments. Our lawyers are doing a better job telling their life stories. The laws have changed, and I think society, for many reasons, has some serious doubts about how effective, how accurate, uh, and what kind of a sound policy the death penalty actually is. There's a recent public opinion poll that says more people actually believe the death penalty cannot be administered fairly by their government than, do, than believe it can be administered fairly. So a majority of Americans have real challenges, real doubts about the way that the death penalty is being used in the United States. More broadly, as far as support for or against the death penalty in this country, what do the numbers, the polls tell us? Well, the, the poll, public opinion polls sort of as an, a straight up or down question, there's just roughly 53% of people who still believe the death penalty is appropriate for murder. But that number has been declining in recent years. And the number of people who oppose the death penalty has been increasing. So I would expect those numbers to also continue to change. And, you know, Mr. Smith's execution is not only causing a lot of concern, but the public is sort of reacting in a very sort of horrified way at the idea that we could try twice to execute an individual and then use this very risky, untested execution method. Um, that, I think, is only going to create more questions about how it's being used here in the United States. Mm. We've been talking to Robin Marr executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center. Robin, thanks very much. My pleasure. Watch great videos produced by your public media stations online. 
Find Buffalo Toronto Public Media on YouTube and check out interviews by our WNED Classical hosts, original productions from WNED PBS, and so much more. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at wbfo.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. This is What's Next. We're speaking with Megan Byrne, a staff attorney at the Capital Punishment Project at the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. Thanks very much for joining, Megan. Thanks so much for having me. So to begin, it might be great to have you describe a little of what you do at the ACLU, your work for the Capital Punishment Program. What does that work look like? Yeah, sure. So at the Capital Punishment Project, we really want to, um, you know, essentially defend against the death penalty um, in a wholesale way. So, you know, the ultimate goal would be the uh, you know abolition of the death penalty as a means of punishment. Um, but, you know, that's done through various means, including representation of, you know, particular clients who have been sentenced to the death penalty or have been threatened with the death penalty. Um, and there's a lot of litigation, particularly in state courts, um, where uh, different states have passed things like racial justice acts, where we represent a particular client, but also uplift the, you know, um, conversation generally around discrimination and the death penalty. And uh, for my particular position, I very much concentrate on racial discrimination and death penalty. And so what has that work led you to discover about, um, you know, racial inequity as it relates to the death penalty? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, I worked, you know, generally in the in the criminal legal system before this, but what I really discovered in terms of capital punishment is that a lot of the, uh, you know, disproportion we see in other aspects of the criminal system are very much heightened when it comes to capital punishment. So even if you're just looking at things like the numbers, you know, generally there's about um, about 40% of people sentenced to capital punishment are black people, you know, versus again, a 13%, um, you know, um, population rate in America. So that's just a very big discrepancy. And to see those kinds of numbers, I think can be kind of surprising when you first start in this work. Speaking here for our audience in Buffalo and Western New York, you know, we're earlier this month, we learned that the Justice Department is seeking the death penalty for Peyton Gendron in the federal case uh, for the racist mass shooting he carried out at the tops here in May of 2022. So the state case is done in his in his case. He was already sentenced to life in prison without parole. Um, But just kind of from based on your experience and when it comes to federal death penalty cases. So can you just talk talk a little bit about this is going to require a whole new trial, right, for him as a defendant? Yes. Yeah, so the question will be, um, will he, you know, if they're seeking the death penalty, the question is, you know, will he be, you know, ultimately given the death penalty? And that will be decided by a jury, but there's really two decisions that have to happen in these cases, right? There's a bifurcation of the trial. Can you explain a little bit about that? That's right. Yeah. So it's a typical death penalty trial. Uh, there's the, the bifurcation, which refers to the fact that you have a, the first stage, which is a guilt phase. And so when we think of trials, often that's what we're thinking about, um, you know, a jury that decides 
whether or not you committed the act beyond a reasonable doubt. And then the difference with the death penalty trial often is that the second stage comes in, and that's often referred to as the penalty phase. And at that level, a jury um, is often deciding whether or not um, they would recommend or they would send you to the death penalty based on the guilt that you know had been established in the first phase. And in your experience, given your familiarity with capital cases, what does a, a death penalty case look like? I mean, I know there's there's no typical one, but how can they play out in the courtroom? And and, and I know, you know, how, how long can they be expected to last really is, is, I think, what has been a question on a lot of people's minds in the community, knowing that, you know, there is the trial, there's the appeals process, all that stuff can take a very long time. What's your sense of how long um, something like this could actually take? Um, yeah, no, I think it's, um, as you kind of alluded to, it is, it is kind of hard to say in terms of the trial itself, you know, so um, often the penalty phase of a trial, um, you know, as opposed to the guilt phase, so it's not relitigating, you know, was this, um, was this act committed, but it's more, it's more about, and, and now at this point, if we've decided as a jury that the act was committed, should the death penalty be awarded, a lot of times that will be more discussion about things like mitigating factors, you know, in the in the person's life, the person who committed the crime, um, and different things like that, while the, the government will often be talking about things that they call aggravating factors, things that they think make it um, so that death penalty is more warranted. And so that's kind of, a, that's a process that, you know, how long it takes really just kind of depends on um, the amount of mitigation or, or, or aggravation there is to, to discuss. But you alluded to the appeals process, and that's really where the time really comes in where, you know, you have people who, um, you know, are executed for crimes that they were convicted of decades before, after a lengthy appeals process. And as you might imagine, an appeals process takes a very long time um, to go through from the beginning to to the last appeal. So can you talk a little bit more about these, this idea of mitigating factors versus aggregating factors? Because essentially, the a- aggravating factors are what may end up, I mean, that's essentially what the prosecution is, is trying to, I guess, not prove, but that, that's, that's what they're focusing on, right? Beca- uh, while the mitigating factors are what the defense tries to, um, tries to sort of focus on, right? I mean, that's maybe a, a bit of oversimplification, but is that kind of the idea that there are these two factors? Right. Yeah. Those are, those are kind of the, the, the factors are the two like larger buckets that are being weighed. Um, and, you know, always taking into account that, you know, a, a juror might weigh both of those factors and, and, you know, decide, uh, you know, all, all of this mitigation, all of these aggravating factors, and then, you know, decide that, um, you know, based on what they've heard, they, they feel that, you know, the death penalty, you know, is, is or isn't warranted. Um, and so often that's kind of, um, that often will include a, deeper dive into the person's life, you know, it might be, um, there's so many different things that could be at play, which is why there's kind of no uh, exhaustive list of things that could be mitigation, but that could come into, you know, someone's um, educational background, someone's mental health background, someone's neurological, you know, uh, situation as far as health goes, um, their their background in terms of like their childhood and growing up um, and, and how they, they were treated. Um, there's just, there's really just so many things that go into it. And so the idea is to, uh, you know, really kind of flesh out the the background of a person more beyond that this act was committed. The question is, what else is there about their life that a jury could consider and in, in determining not to, you know, um, sentence them to the death penalty? 
And so speaking about your own work for a moment, you've been a public defender. You've focused, as you mentioned, on um, racial inequality in the criminal justice system. Um, you also uh, you have focused on non-litigation strategies for addressing racial bias in the criminal legal system. I'm really curious what that looks like. What are what are some of those strategies um, that, that you've, you've focused on and that you've you've um, that you've worked with? Yeah, so my work is really um, concentrated on um, accepting this idea that, you know, racial racial inequity is very much, uh, you know, it's very prevalent, you know, generally, but certainly in the criminal legal system. And I and not wanting to limit what we think the solution might that be to one particular case and the outcome of a case and one particular judge. And so while I think, you know, litigation is extremely important, I really wanted to focus on things like um, let's look at the laws that there are, right? You know, some laws that are written really have disproportionate effects against people of color. So are there ways to discuss those laws? Are there ways to even propose the writing of new laws? And so, uh, you know, I've done some work around, um, I guess, legislation and, and speaking with people. Um, I've spoken with people, you know, at the New York state level um, to see what, you know, those th- what thoughts are about laws that could be passed, laws that could be amended, things like that. Um, and I think a big part of it also is public education, which is something we very much also value at the ACLU, which is really just letting the really letting the public be aware of what some of these issues are and um, raising awareness around things that like, you know, there's certainly things that frankly, I didn't know until I delved into this. And I, you know, have wholeheartedly believed that if the public knew more about these types of things, if there's more public education, that, um, you know, there'd be more movement on some of these issues. So I, I think those are two big non-litigation strategies. There's also community organizing, you know, um, and going directly to community. There are really just so many ways that we can look at these issues and someone doesn't have to be a lawyer to, you know, make a difference in these different areas. You know, you mentioned learning a lot of things that were really surprising to you and, and especially you as a person who has spent a lot of time working in um, in this field. C- can you share maybe something that you learned that surprised you that made you think of, of this work or maybe thinking think about um, how policy and education can make a, a huge difference that uh, maybe you hadn't considered before? Yeah, I think there's, so there's been a couple of things. One, I think, is that um, this is just something that particularly um, I've learned so much more about uh, the more that I've done this work in, in terms of capital um, capital defense and, and race, which is about the, the linking of the death penalty to lynching. And I say that because um, you, I've, I, I'd heard in my, as a public defender, people refer to capital punishment as legal lynching, things like this. And I understood that, that there was a very much a disproportion in terms of who um, received capital punishment. But the more that I had done this job, I've done more and more research into that link. And one thing that uh, frankly surprised me was doing research and finding out just how direct the linkage was between this uh, period of time in America where so many lynchings were prevalent and um, then the, the public you know, reacted poorly to this and, and and was essentially, you know, making it clear that they were not fine with lynching, that this wasn't okay, and that we saw certain people um, decide, well, let's go the capital punishment route in in um, reaction to that, and this idea that, well, that would be more palatable to people, and so there really was a time period where you see lynchings, you know, low, the amount of lynchings lower and the number of uh, capital punishment uh, rise at the same time and kind of take off into what it is today. And I just thought, I thought that was surprising just because it just, it just seems so 
so marked and I guess um, so much more transparent than I had thought that it would be before I really delved into it. You know, you know, race is such a crucial component to this case that we have here in Buffalo with Peyton Gendron because obviously it's a white defendant who carried out a racially motivated attack now facing a possible death penalty sentence while the data shows that the application of the death penalty um, has, you know, kind of as your work has has touched on, um, has been mired in racial prejudice with defendants of color largely being executed um, way more often than white defendants. So I, I'm just curious, you know, it, it, what your take on that is as it kind of relates to this case. I mean, it, it seems like a, that's a very complex, a very dense um, background and history to apply to something that's happening and quite frankly affecting a community that it was victimized, is traumatized because of this, um, and is frankly still healing and, and going through that process. So I'm just curious if, if in your work and in, in, in your experience, if you, um, you, you, you have a take on that, if you're able to maybe shed some light on this for folks in the community who are, are trying to work through and untangle that themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like you said, it, it is so complex. To be honest with you, I, my, my heart could not go more out to the community of Buffalo and to the community that was targeted. I felt it very viscerally when this happened. Um, and so it's, I think it's, it's holding in, um, it's holding at the same time, complex emotions, right? Cause I very much feel that I feel it very viscerally. And at the same time, I feel very strongly that um, any kind of nudge forward on the, like on the road to the acceptance of capital punishment as something that should exist or something that isn't racist or something that won't end up disproportionately killing so many more black people. I, at the same time, I can't, I can't support anything on that, on that road. And so I think that, um, you know, it, it's, it's a little scary for me because I do, I mean, I, I have heard people say, you know, well, this, in this case, you know, we're talking about a white defendant and, and talk about more of the details of the case. Um, and I, I understand those points that I'm making when they say that. And I just, I guess, have to always, when I have those discussions, reaffirm that this is, um, you know, this is a policy that is going to, you know, continue supporting this uh, form of punishment. This has been so very racist and so marred in racism. And there's no reason to think that if we don't continue supporting it, whether it's in this case or in other cases, that it's not going to continue to have the disproportionate effect that it normally has had, but has, was, you know, actually designed to have from its outset. And so I, I, I very much, um, I think I commiserate people who are trying to balance those complexities. And at the same time, I do think that it's, it's really important to note that, you know, at, at, at one point, you know, it was said, I believe in, in the campaign trail that President Biden would not support the death penalty. And that support, I believe, was support that would further racial justice and racial equity. This, this decision to further the death penalty by any means, I don't think is a reason that would support racial equity or further racial justice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is obviously, as you you know, as you mentioned too, there's a lot of emotion tied up in in this. That's that's part of why I bring up that appeals process because the longer this particular case um, goes on, and and it, you know, the news headlines continue, and occasionally there's a lull, and then more news headlines happen. Um, that becomes a um, a point of um, of tr of trauma of of uh, it, it becomes an emotional uh, you know a longer emotional process for folks. So um, yeah. I'm just curious in your work have you have you seen that process and and kind of 
the length of it and 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 all of that um take an emotional toll on 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 folks i mean on on families on on defend i mean in the in the people that you've been around in in your work yeah yeah no i do think i think it's very emotional and you know it's um you know with any kind of um hard loss or anything like that we any emotional thing that we go through in life you often hear this idea of closure and um i think that's kind of what you're speaking to the idea that these these are such long processes and we we do know this person was given you know life without parole and that was a sense that happened but in terms of kind of starting up a new process that will then again go on for for a very long time i think it kind of goes to that idea of closure and um you do see you see that the the process of emotions doesn't happen quite the same when something is not you know is not over. So I do understand that, and I do think that um, you know it, it, putting aside you know the the racial equity that I've kind of been hounding on about death penalty, there are a lot of I think more you could look at them as more kind of logistical reasons that I that I I don't believe in it. But one of them is that this this idea of the time that's involved, and not just the fact that it leads to something that's more expensive than even life in prison is, you know, for the community, like, I don't know, as far as financially goes, but that is something that is also, you know, arguably more expensive emotionally in terms of the time that it takes and the, the many, many years that um, are going to pass, that would pass between, you know, the time of a sentence and um, an execution. I, I think that those are just kind of battle around. So um, um, the defendant in this case here in Buffalo is due back in court on Friday. Um, and I, I'm just kind of curious, like, from your point of view, you know, broadly speaking, maybe what's next for um, for this case in, in terms of what people in the community should maybe be prepared to um, just kind of endure or as, you know, like I said, as these headlines come out, is it is it just um, a matter of um, trying to understand that it's, it is going to be a long process and try to, um, you know, do, do whatever has to be done to, um, to get through? Yeah, I do think that that is, is it important to realize just how, just how kind of long and, and drawn out a process like this is. And, um, you know, I think that, yeah, so I don't think that anyone should go into this hoping for something very, very quick, just because that's just not likely to be the case. And I think it is important for people's mental and emotional well-being that they really be steeled as to the reality of, of what that's likely to be in terms of, you know, all, all the time taken. And I, it also makes me think, you know, um, you know, what about um, as different things happen as far as, you know, whatever happens in the case, whatever happens in appeals, if there are, you know, if that's what it comes to, you know, this kind of this resurgence often of the, um, of the subject, right? And so it might not even just be that it's long, but it might be, um, you know, a revisiting of trauma. And that's something I really would want people to be able to be prepared for as well. Well, Megan Byrne, uh, thank you so much for being here on What's Next. Megan Byrne is a staff attorney at the ACLU Capital Punishment Program. And um, yeah, we really appreciate the conversation. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Hey, is this thing on? Test, test, one, two. Sounds great. Let's go. The podcast world is overflowing with more than 750,000 podcasts to choose from. But for great local podcasts, you can now go to one place, the new Amplify BTPM Pods app. Here you can discover content produced in Western New York and Southern Ontario, our own backyard. With a wide variety of genres to choose from, there is something for everyone. 
Listen to the best independently produced podcast in the region, anywhere, anytime. Download the free Amplify BTPM Pods app wherever you get your apps and begin exploring your local podcast community now. Did you know that WNED PBS is always working on great new local shows for you to watch? Documentaries like Kleinhand's Gift to Buffalo, which tells the story of Buffalo's music hall. The hall is very intimate. And that intimacy makes everyone who comes in here feel a part of our family. Fun and educational series like Compact Science. Believe it or not, peppers are technically fruits. And Shakespeare's greatest hits featuring some of his best-known soliloquies and monologues. We are such stuff as dreams are made of. You can watch them all on our website at wned.org slash local shows. While you're there, check out the show pages and mini websites for additional content such as bonus features, photo galleries, and lesson plans. Find it all at wned.org slash local shows. This is the Buffalo Toronto Public Media History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the week of January 29th through February 4th. I'm your host and program director, Tom Barrich. Western New York, historically not usually known for its seismic activity, did register an earthquake on January 29th, 1864. The rest of these are all February 1st. February 1st, 1878 is the date that the first phone company began operations and registered its first call in Buffalo. Though originally founded in 1960, the Buffalo Bills did not join the NFL until February 1st, 1970. While the Pan Am Exposition happened in Buffalo between May and November of 1901, tickets to the historical event went on sale to the public for the very first time on February 1st, 1901. And February 1st, 1948 is the date that musician James Ambrose Johnson Jr. was born. That musician will later go by the more recognizable name of Rick James. You've been listening to the WBFO History Bite. Discover more stories about Western New York's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website. Learn more at buffalohistory.org. For Buffalo Toronto Public Media, I'm Tom Barrich. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at wbfo.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. This is What's Next. Today, we're speaking with William Easton, partner at Easton Thompson Kasparic Schifrin, who has been learned counsel for death penalty cases in Western New York and elsewhere in the state. Thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, no, it's my pleasure. So before we talk a little bit about this case, I would love if you could just kind of give a little background when it comes to your involvement in death penalty cases. You served as counsel in capital cases, um, worked in the Capital Defender Office, and I'm just kind of curious like what, what that experience was like and, and, and what that entailed. Yes, I, I worked at Capital Defender's Office for probably uh, 11 years. And then uh, as part of it, I administered the office, tried uh, three or four cases, uh, and worked on capital teams for uh, probably another six or seven. And so at at 
the Capitol Defender Office, like what 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 was your actual work? I mean, you were you were essentially um, you were defending folks who were up against death penalty cases, and that was at the state level. At the state level, yes. In New York, had a, a state death penalty for about oh twelve years, and what? and then uh, I was eliminated. The, the feds kept the death penalty, and then after the death penalty was eliminated stateside, uh, I worked in the federal system for probably another fifteen years. Okay, and so. Um, what what's an example of like the kind of of case that you would work on in that office? I mean, I, I know I'm sure there's no like typical capital case, but in, in terms of like what what that entailed, I mean, a lot of that work on the defender side comes into um, this idea of um, mitigating factors, right? I mean, that's a lot of what the defense and capital cases focuses on. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yes, uh, a capital case differs from a regular case in so many ways, but but the fundamental difference is, is that there's two trials. There's a first trial, it's, it's to guilt or innocence, and then if it's guilt for a capital offense, then there's a second trial as to sentencing, whether the mitigating factors are outweighed by the aggravating factors. In, in this case uh, that we've been talking about earlier this year, we learned that the Department of Justice is seeking the death penalty for Peyton Gendron for, in his federal case for the racist shooting attack at Tops here in Buffalo in uh, May 2022. So he's already been sentenced to life in prison without parole on the state charges, but uh, this is, these are obviously federal charges. Is it typical for the Department of Justice to seek the death penalty for someone who's already been sentenced on state charges like this? Is this uh, something we've seen before? Uh, certainly not typical. Uh, I can't say it's never been done before. There are pending cases in that area. We had a, we had a case uh, in the Northern District where the client had pled guilty was doing multiple life sentences, and the Fed still uh, authorized the penalty case. And so what is, can you give a little bit of background of New York State's relationship with the death penalty? You sort of mentioned this before, but um, obviously it hasn't been in place here at the state level for, I think, almost 20 years or so, right? But can, can you give a little bit of the history? Yeah, New York reinstituted the death penalty with in 1994, when George Pataki was elected governor. Then for about, I don't know, 11 years, uh, it proceeded until finally it was declared unconstitutional on state constitutional grounds. And so it was disabled, pretty much dismantled, and it's never been revised since. So it, it, I think it was 2004, 2005, where it's officially uh, the court or the state court of appeals ruled that it was uh, unconstitutional. And what what was the the context around around um, the state court of appeals making that ruling? I mean, that w- that was brought about in, in reaction to a particular case, or that was the the result of um, a lot of litigation? Or can can you explain a little bit about how it ended in, in the state at the state level? Yeah kind of a esoteric issue, but it was uh, it involved a 
jury deadlocking on uh, the sentence, whether it would be life without parole, death, and what would be the consequences of it. And the New York statute was that it, if it was deadlocked, the defendant was entitled to a life sentence with parole. But if, uh, and the jury was informed of that. And then our argument was that was unconstitutional under the state constitution because it allowed one juror to uh, determine the outcome and expose the defendant to parole relief by holding out. So in terms of your role like at the Capitol Defender Office, it's interesting because you in in defending against capital ca- or in, in being defense in capital cases um when the office closed i mean what was your reaction it was was it you you were you're kind of out of a job but was it in a certain way it's kind of what you had been working toward if if if, if that's like one way to look at it yes i was ecstatic that the ball was disabled and deserved to be but i it was a little bittersweet because i had a disassemble the office and lay office uh, 15 people. And so you said after that, then you started working uh, at federal cases, right? Yes. Okay, so what what about like, what about here in Western New York um, in terms of the, the relationship with capital cases um, and, and kind of the region here? I mean, it seems, given that it had been, it has been 20 years since um, the state got rid of the, the death penalty at the state level, to have a federal case here in Western New York seems um, like a, a pretty, you know, a unique event. So is there, can you talk a little bit about like your experience? I know you, you did these cases throughout the state, but is there a particular like a case or, or, or something about the, the relationship between Buffalo or Western New York um, and what having a case like this Gendron case now, what, what, what that means or what, what that kind of signifies for the area? Well, the Western District of New York hasn't authorized the case really before gender and for like, I don't know, 20 years or nearly 20 years. It was uh, Noah Gladding was, the, was authorized around that time. Yeah, I represented Gladding. And what happened was the Department of Justice eventually withdrew the death penalty. So as a as learned counsel for a defendant possibly facing the death penalty uh, as, as a sentence, like what what uh, can you can you talk a little bit about like the likely steps of uh, a capital trial? I mean, there's the and, and in this case, let's let's take the gender case, for example, that the there's the DOJ's notice to seek the death penalty. And then there's, you know, all the way to when he may get sentenced. What what are kind of the steps in between that that we can sort of uh, expect to see play out? Well, there are uh, a number of steps. Yeah, a lot of them are going to be time-intensive. Uh, uh, <laughs> the steps will be motion practice, and the motions are very complicated about where venue, where, where, uh, 
about what mitigating factors, what uh, what sentencing factors will be involved. Are there are there psychological, not defensive, but mitigation factors? And then from there, I mean. Is there, we can expect appeals, right? Because typically in these cases, um, all the way up until that that or until after the sentencing, um, there's appeal. Is 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 that a decision that he'll make with his defense team, or is that something that happens automatically? I, I, can you talk a little bit about that? An appeal, an appeal is automatic. Okay, and so what 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 exactly would that would that mean? Um, if, if, so the so the the trial ends, you get sentenced, and then that that process starts up automatically. What it, what does that mean exactly? That the it essentially um, you, it, it, just a lot of waiting until it, the the case is is taken up again in in the um, court of appeals. Yeah, so the direct appeal would go to the second circuit, and it would be the examination of the entire trial, the beginning to the end, and any legal issues that came up with it. And, and then the second circuit will make a decision. If they find in favor of the government, the defense can take it up to the Supreme Court. So there's no guarantee of how long that process might take because there's no guarantee of what the process actually will look like until it plays out, right? No, and that's only the beginning of the process because uh, if the Supreme Court sustains the conviction, then the defendant can bring what's called a writ of habeas corpus and litigate that. And he litigates that at the district court level. And if if the defendant doesn't prevail there, he can take that up to the second circuit and then up that up to the Supreme Court. So there are a number of avenues that the defendant can take to uh, basically appeal this, and it's not just one appeal. Right. Okay. And it's not over. I, I want to stress it's not overly technical. Is uh, there are many defendants that were released uh, after the habeas corpus, uh, the errors discovered, uh, and if you streamline this process, it will inevitably uh, result in someone being convicted uh, and sentenced to death without adequate legal reasons and improve. So given your background, that that is exactly, I mean, that th- what what kind of drew you, I would imagine that it's th- it's that exact kind of mentality that drew you into work in the Capital Defender Office. What what were some of the um yeah, like what what kind of led you there? I mean, it's it's there there seems to be this idea when it comes to capital defense particularly that um, it, it's about um, an attorney or a team of attorneys wanting to make sure that the every Every mechanism is in place for a defendant to get the best representation that they can, essentially, um, because of you know constitutionality and 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 at the highest level that might be a capital case. Is that kind of what what led you in? Is is the the um, the desire to to want to be to do that and be part of that? Yes, yeah, so that's part of it. I mean, the the essence of it is that if it. It's human beings on trial for his or her life, they deserve a defense that's equivalent to that. And so that, you know, you're on trial for your life, you're, you're entitled to the defense of your life. 
And what exactly, how, how do you approach that? I mean, that, that just seems, that seems like such a, a large, um, a large task. <laughs> so how, how do you, how do you kind of approach that? I mean, I'm sure it's different for every case, but, um, it, it, do you, do you, do you have to go into that with, um, with, with that mentality or is it easier to think of it, I don't know, in, in some other, um, way or I don't know, just the magnitude of that, I think strikes me. And I think would strike folks who, um, I certainly don't have legal background or, or, you know, have, if they do, they maybe have never been in a, um, a situation where they've had to defend against a capital offense. How do you, what, what do you think about in, in the lead up into that and, and, and during the trials? Well, the magnitude is, Patrick, is, is, is overwhelming. And that's why you need a team. And that's why you need to uh, explore everything. Because, you know, hold, holding a human being's life in your hand is that you have a responsibility to defend it with every bit of energy and persuasiveness and passion and legal arguments that you can sum it up. And this this is something that I hear, and I, I sort of apologize for uh, almost even saying it, but it's something that I've heard said, you know, uh, there, there's this idea of um, how can you defend someone who, who's, you know, accused and, and charged with these crimes. I mean, did, I, I, maybe people have said that to you, maybe not, but I'm, I'm sure you've been around th- th- that kind of conversation. What uh, What's your thought process if you hear a question like that, or maybe you even have a a response to it, but I, I just assume that that's always something that, if not spoken, it's it, it often is is unspoken. I think in someone's mind, or it can be, um, in terms of you know uh, maybe what what's what what is a, a very heinous offense. Yes, that, that lingers around, but it, truthfully, it lingers more for the guilt phase. I don't think many people belabor the fact that a defendant. He could have the opportunity to defend whether he or she is is executed. So, can you talk a little bit about like the the end of your time at the Capitol Defender Office? So, what? So, you said you were ecstatic, but obviously, there's the the hard hard part of um, then you know having to close the office and people are out of work. But what what's that? That that must be an interesting combination of feelings. Um, what 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 kind of what was the energy like in the office as um, as you sort of packed it up and and realized like this was the end of the road for that particular office? Oh, it's just it's, you know sad to lay people off, and they're all talented, and uh, it was you know it's sad, but it was outweighed I, by the benefit of, of getting rid of a, a death penalty that was costly destructive to many things in our community and uh, was ultimately so much more beneficial to not have it. And so that's an interesting point, the cost of it. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, cause that's, that might be a, a point that, uh, and this is something I've seen before, but the, there, there, there is sort of a, a, an analysis, right. Of how much it actually costs to keep someone on death row, but, and then also eventually executed versus what it takes to, you know, just have them in, in prison for life. And there's numbers that can back up the fact that the death penalty is an immense cost. Is that right? Yes. There's been a number of studies that differ a little bit. I, I think Duke University did one a decade or two ago that was the gold standard. But it was pretty, it's pretty much acknowledged that they actually 
sentence someone to death and go through that appellate process that we, we talked about earlier uh, is, is tremendously expensive uh, in terms of the defense costs, the prosecution costs, expert costs. Uh, so th- there's no question uh, of tremendous amount of resources that would an execution requires. The other... That's just financial, too. Sure. Okay. So, in, in what uh, what what are some of the other costs then? Human cost. Uh, people dealing with uh, executing someone, the court staff, the uh, actual people that uh, injected the defendant, the uh, spiritual advisors, the, the cost of the families involved, both the victims and the defendants. And I think the other portion that you had just alluded to before that was in terms of, I think, inequality or, or maybe that is something that's something that I've heard a lot about the way that the that the death penalty ends up being meted out. And there, there's is that something that you ran into um, across your, your cases? Is that something that you've talked about or heard about just in terms of um, I mean, I think specifically racial equity, it comes up in, in racial inequality. It comes up in that space, too. Is that something that you have a lot of um, that, that you came across in your work? Yes, a lot of studies on that. There's a lot of factors involved to control for. But one of the major determinants is location, where the crime occurs uh, and uh, racial components. And uh, it's it's basically skewed. You know, with, with that in mind, as as this particular trial does continue, you know, the community that was targeted in the attack essentially re-experiences it through news headlines. Um, this is a community that's you know still trying to heal. Uh, often, folks get thrust back into it through news headlines and updates. Um, it, I, I'm curious. Have have you seen anything in past cases in your experience that might speak to this? Are there lessons to maybe be gleaned about what what to keep in mind um, as this particular case and cases like it, as they do often take a, a long time to to from as I said from um, you know the the Department of Justice making their announcement to you know eventual appeals and that whole process. What what what's there to be kept in mind throughout that whole process? Well, I wouldn't presume to speak on behalf of any victim. Uh, every victim in victim's family has unique circumstances and considerations. So it's all different. But I think it can be fairly stated that the that long process, the agonizing reliving of, of the offense, does create substantial pain uh, for for a number of victims, and whether that's something a pain that they want, a pain that they think it's worth it, that's that's an individual decision. But I don't think there can be any question that the the actual execution will will bring about so much uh, reliving and of the event, horrendous event. Are are there larger implications about what having the death penalty on the table in this case might mean for future cases in Western New York? And I, I guess 
I should say, I'm asking this while also knowing the history you just laid out about, you know, we're talking about a state that it's gotten rid of it at the state level, and this is a federal case. But are there are there any implications the way you as you see it um, for you know the region in terms of what this case could mean for the future? Uh, I think it's too early to make those conclusions, but it's, that's a political decision too. It's, it's, the decision to make to seek the death penalty is the attorney general's decision. Mm-hmm. His or her decision alone, and uh, that's a it, no matter how assiduously or honestly that the attorney general seeks to divorce him or herself from politics, they never can. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And in this case, it who knows what would happen there's a change in administration or a change in the attorney general. Uh, there's all sorts of factors that have come in. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, you know, the name of our show is What's Next. I mean, what what, what would you recommend um, sort of people in terms of what's next for this particular case, what would you recommend people kind of watch out for or just kind of keep their eyes open for um, in terms of what might, what might come next um, in terms of court appearances, in terms of, um, I don't know, when, when the case actually starts to get going, what, what, would, you, what would you recommend people um, keep their eyes, eyes peeled for? They keep, keep your eyes open for the motion. Uh, there's going to be a number of legal motions. On this case, immediately young, uh, he's got a prior conviction, multiple life sentences that he's dealing with, and there are some legal issues raised. So I, I think the public should be prepared for an extensive period of time uh, for having these motions aired out and litigated, and then there'll be a, a trial date set. If if the case isn't uh, resolved before then, is there a long term kind of emotional impact on just how how long the that that process can take, in, including um, the motion, including all the other factors, and then through the appeals? Is there and and I, I kind of asked that openly, meaning it, it, from you know the. The council from uh, any any number of people on either side of, of the case here is there in cases like this as as we kind of talked about earlier there is high emotion is there an emotional toll a cost um, of um, of of these cases I mean the longer they go on are are, are those emotions uh, prolonged for a long amount of time I, I, Duration would certainly add to it, but it's unquestionable that these cases are emotionally exhausting. And uh, as an attorney, you have to devote your whole practice, your whole energy and effort to this one task to save your client's life. And as that that drags on and on, it becomes very, very draining. And when you were doing these cases, how did you kind of weigh that, weigh that and whether that emotional cost was there, were there any, sorry, we get a little personal, but I'm just curious as someone who's really, this is, you know, this is your career, this is your specialty. Are, are there, what kind of lessons did you learn in terms of um, being able to handle all that? 
Well, you draw upon your professional allies, and I think even more importantly, your personal uh, cadre of supporters, people that you love, your family, and help you through it. William Easton is a partner at Easton Thompson Kasparic Schifrin and a former attorney at the Capitol Defender Office here in New York State. Thanks so much for joining us here on What's Next. Uh, no, it's my pleasure. And this is What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1, Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.